Grace. <clears throat> Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Give me one second. All right. I didn't have a Nicene Creed, and I wanted to have that before the uh, before the recitation. Uh, hear the call to worship now from Psalm 135, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. And let us do so now by standing and singing together hymn number 13.
Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, again we come to you with a sense of uh, uh, gratitude and indebtedness to your mercy and your love and your grace. We recognize that we are uh, at best unworthy servants. We are debtors to mercy alone. We are, we are not uh, those who have uh, any power or possession which commands us to you. Uh, And yet your heart goes out to us. You have uh, an invincible and eternal desire to save your elect. Uh, You you pity us, though we deserve your wrath. It is incredible to think we can hardly express our wonder and our love. Can it be that God, uh, that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing to think, and yet uh, there it is. There is the gospel. There is uh, the message of salvation. And there is our salvation. We look to a Savior who is both God and man. We look to Jesus Christ, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, who was a man, but one who came from the line of Judah and one who emerges from the lineage, uh, the priestly lineage, uh, so to speak, <coughs> of Melchizedek. <coughs> Lord Jesus, we we are... Conscious of our need for your priestly work on our behalf, we acknowledge ourselves to be sinner, devoid of any good, any uh, any merit, any righteousness. When uh, we think of ourselves in terms of your justice and your law, that is, when we allow conscience to have the say, we uh, we are full of a sense of guilt and even dread at the divine wrath. Uh, but when we move beyond such thoughts by faith to consider our priestly intercessor, our priestly offering, uh, or or, uh, our priest who offers, I should say, himself for our sins, suddenly we are aware of a new reality and even a new dimension which we are able to enter into. Not that of uh, the guilt of the sinner, but rather that of the righteousness of another imputed to us, uh, our guilt being imputed to him. Uh, There's a wonderful truth here that we can only begin uh, and barely to grasp uh, the the inner logic of the gospel. That you not only take away our sin by imputation, but you impute, as Luther said, the alien righteousness of Christ to us. And now you consider us as we are in him. And you give us a place in the heavenly sanctuary along with him and under him. We would never seek to come on our own anyways. We would be too afraid. But through him and under him and by him, we have and we find a confidence and a boldness to draw near. And Father, we know that nothing so honors you as this, that we should draw near through him. For here is your will coming to the fullest and the best expression. Uh, There there really is no other way, either that of wrath or of grace. And we we come by grace. We we uh, throw in our lot with Jesus, just as he threw in our lot with his lot with us. And so we are saved and so we are safe and so we stand secure and even, may we say, perfect before the throne of God. Perfect, that is, again, not as we are considered in ourselves, but as we are considered in him, as we are counted worthy by his wounds and by his righteousness. And what is even more amazing to consider is is the, the good things and the glories that await us. Uh, the total transformation of our bodies, the putting off of the current body of death, 
the, the lifelong struggle of sin coming to an end. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that even now you intercede uh, on our behalf as a heavenly helper to us. But we thank you uh, beyond that with thanksgiving and with confidence that one day the bitter struggle will end and that you will bring it to an end and that the fullness of uh, the fullness of the death which you died to sin will come to us in a way that we have yet to experience where uh, where the, the, the struggle of sin has come to an end, where the temptations are no more and even the trials are no more. Entering in uh, to a higher plane of existence, that of heavenly and perpetual life, a life which cannot be lost. Lord, these are the things which, uh, which capture our hearts and our minds. These are the things which make up the hope which we have as Christians and the eager longing. But we confess that there is need of patience. We need uh, for you to instill in us faith hope and patience so that we can go forward and not grow discouraged so long as we do not possess the fullness of these things. We need you, dear Lord, to strengthen your church and to give us courage and to give us uh, perseverance, uh, for we are apt in ourselves to fall or even to fall away, and only you are strong enough to make us stand and, and to stand in the day of Christ. And so, O Holy Spirit, we ask you to cause the work of salvation to go on in each of us, or perhaps in some, uh, to begin that work, certainly in the children. We look forward in the coming months and the coming years to hear uh, many professions, professions of faith, and we have confidence that we will, O Lord. We look to you in your faithfulness, and we, uh, we count on that faithfulness to bring us and our children safely through this dangerous world into heaven, O God of the covenant. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 9. As we resume our study of Exodus and break the text up. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13 to the end. And then uh, chapter 10, we'll read a little later on. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me for this time. I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, uh, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But the one who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. 
So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as has not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field, all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripen late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Moses' heart was hard, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now let us stand together and sing in response to God's word, the doxology. Turn with me to the front of your hymnal and reading together the Nicene Creed. Read along with me. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, 
who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And now let us stand together and sing in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, hymn number 20. seated and turn with me now once more to Exodus chapter 10 as we conclude our reading now the eighth and the ninth plague then the Lord said to Moses go to Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. 
and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. When uh, or Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones uh, that are going? Moses said, we shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, thus may the Lord be with you. If ever I let your little ones go, take heed for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing was green or nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and he said, I've sinned against the Lord, your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord, your God, that he would remove only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, uh, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land for there for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord, our God. Therefore, our livestock, too, shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord, our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. But then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, You are right, I shall never see your face again. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. It's a very full and a rich word which we've read this evening. We ask you that you might unfold it through the exposition uh, to give a clearer sense uh, of, of the meaning, uh, but also that we might uh, be driven to greater heights in our own faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember Pharaoh and his confrontation with uh, Moses and his confrontation with Pharaoh, uh, has ten plagues which uh, he casts. Well, nine really. The Lord casts the last. And uh, those nine are divided very naturally into three sets of threes. We are here uh, considering the last set of three, the last triplet before the final climactic one, which we will consider next time. Following the plagues of blood, frogs, and flies. After that, swarms of flies, death of cattle, and boils. The final three uh, mark out a new stage. You remember that while the first three, all Egypt shared in common, and that included uh, Israel along with them. In the second three, a mark of distinction was made. Those who were in Goshen were exempted. And the same mark of distinction remains here. And if anything, it is only stronger. But we have in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 9, which was the first thing uh, we read together, a kind of general introduction to these final three, not just an introduction to the seventh, but to the final three, seven, eight, and nine. And there we get a sense of God's special purpose for the final three. The main thing that we see here in these three plagues of hail, locusts, and darkness is how these things were far worse and more terrible than what preceded them. And so they were, as Kyle and Dillich say, forerunners of the judgment which would inevitably fall upon Pharaoh in the tenth plague. There is, with each successive plague, an unquestionable growing in intensity, all of which, once again, leads climactically on to the tenth. Things just keep getting worse and worse until they reach a final breaking point when the Lord is through with Pharaoh or through dealing with Pharaoh. But we see uh, that even before we reach that breaking point, in the tenth plague, that here with the seventh, eighth, and ninth, God is bringing Pharaoh to a new stage. Something is said here that had not been said before. Verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you. The Lord hadn't said that before. You remember that following the sixth plague, the, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Plagues one through five, we either read that Pharaoh's heart was hard or that he hardened his heart, it was the sixth plague that was the decisive mark, uh, a, a decisive turning point, I mean, where the Lord now hardens his heart, and now he says that the judgment and the woes will fall upon you and your person, and even on your heart. And as we see continual references to the heart of Pharaoh, we recognize that God was dealing with Pharaoh individually as much as Egypt nationally in all of this. And more and more, it was Pharaoh who becomes the focus up to the end. But before I make further general observations about these three plagues, let us notice certain things about each in particular. First of all, the hail, which was the seventh plague. What stands out to me here 
about the hail is not so much the hail itself as what uh, accompanied it, namely thunder and fire, which is highly remarkable. Verses 22 through 24, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his, his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Obviously, this was a terrible woe. Uh, and it marked a great calamity in, in the life of Israel and in the life, or excuse me, the life of Egypt and the life of the man, uh, this man Pharaoh. And so you get a clear sense uh, by what is being said there that the Lord was working desolation in the land as well as striking terror in the hearts of men, especially, uh, as I say, the man Pharaoh. I'm reminded here of something that comes a little bit later uh, in the giving of the law at Sinai where we find the same features. We find thunder and fire. Uh, and the same response, the terror was struck in the hearts of the sons of Israel. Uh, chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, if you want to read that later. So I would say this, uh, both about this phenomenon, which we find here and later, that the Lord has a way of making his presence known, if only by secondary means. To come by fire and thunder is enough, uh, enough for men to know that he dwells in the land, which is what the Lord had been saying. He says... In order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land, chapter 8, verse 22, or chapter 9, verse 29, uh, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it, everything that occurs, belongs to him and comes to pass because of him. But again, we see how Goshen was set apart. No hail or fire or thunder came upon them, though again, as I say, look for that a little bit later. Not hail, but fire and thunder. Their land and crops were safe. And Pharaoh, as I said, was deeply affected by all this. He utters a kind of confession of sin. This time he says, the Lord is the righteous one and I and my people are the, the wicked ones. He begins, it would almost seem to repent. Though we'll return to that thought later on in the sermon, the false repentance of Pharaoh. But here we must notice it is a strange confession. Ignoring, for instance, his prior hardness. You notice he says this time. But he was uninterested in the six times which came before and even seven because there was an exchange between he and Moses before the plagues. And in reality, all he was seeking is deliverance from the present hardship. Uh, let's see, how does he put it? There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. So he asks only that the plague may be averted. Not for God to deal with the plague of his own heart. You notice that Moses rightly suspects that he still does not fear the Lord by what he says in verse 30. I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God, even though he had uttered a kind of repentance. But amazingly, to demonstrate the long suffering of the Lord and of the righteous in the presence of wickedness, he prays anyways. He intercedes uh, on behalf of Pharaoh that the, the plague may be averted. And so it is. And to no one's surprise, Pharaoh returns immediately to his former hardness. In, in the, uh, the eighth instance, we have the locusts. Here, locusts are sent as the army of the Lord, an unstoppable force of nature. They are here 
as in Joel and in Revelation, Joel chapters 1 and 2, Revelation chapter 9, verse 3 and following, a picture of divine judgment, a harbinger of the last day. Whatever was left in the land from the hail's destruction was now finished off by the locusts. Total destruction was the result, a picture of the woe the last day will bring. Following that, darkness. And here we must realize that the darkness which Egypt experienced in the land went beyond the darkness of night. It was something more terrible. It was something that could be felt and which which struck terror once more in the hearts of men. It was more like the utter darkness of hell, which now befell the nation of of Egypt and which no light could dispel for three days. It was an utter darkness. And it was a darkness which corresponded to their spiritual state, as Jesus indicates uh, in his preaching in John chapter three, that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil, a fitting judgment for this wicked nation. Whereas we notice again a mark of distinction which uh, the Lord makes that the people in Goshen, a picture of the church dwelt in the light. Verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23 They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. What a fitting picture, beloved, here of the difference that God makes between those who dwell in God's house and those who make their Sabbath day a day of darkness and worldly pleasure. Well, so much for the plagues Uh, in particular. Let me make uh, a few comments about the plagues in general, because that is our great interest, the way they come to us as a triplet. Locust, uh, hail and darkness. There are five points here I want to make, which we notice in each of these or uh, all of them together. The first is how each of these plagues, terrible though they were, were merely the intensification of natural phenomena with which the the Egyptians were already familiar. And you might think in saying that, that in somehow I am diminishing the supernatural element, but I assure you I am not. The Lord was taking uh, bad things that they had experienced and just bringing them in a worse way. Natural phenomenon intensified. The Egyptians knew all about hail and darkness and locusts. They had experienced these things before. What was so different about them now was the way they came so suddenly and with such incredible intensity and precision. What was the Lord indicating by this? By intensifying natural phenomena. Why didn't he act above nature as we are accustomed to thinking uh, miracles? Miracles are, uh, generally speaking, the Lord acting above nature. Here, the Lord is acting by nature. If the Lord had acted above nature, wouldn't that have proven more decisively his supernatural power? As, for instance, in the case of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, let me suggest that in this case, it would not have. And the reason is this. Egypt assigned the power of nature to their own false gods. And the thing that would most abase their false gods and their false religion was to prove that it was the Lord who was, in fact, in control of all the elements of nature. The things that they supposed and assigned to their own false gods. No, it was not them. It was him. Everything, every force of nature 
was at his disposal. And once God proved that by the plagues, by these nine plagues, but especially the last three, he also proved that these things always were, not just now, but always, that he dwells in the midst of the land and that the earth is the Lord's, which again, we've seen is the Lord's point here. I don't just want you to know that I am the Lord, but that the Lord dwells in the midst of the land. And so it must have occurred to the Egyptians that for the Lord to bring these natural woes now also meant that all prior natural occurrences were his doing as well. Again, the overthrowing of false religion. Another thing this indicates clearly along uh, this first line is that the Lord doesn't rule at a distance. He does not hide himself in the heavens, but he is showing us that he dwells in the land, that he rules the land. All that occurs in life and in nature is his doing. It is all the execution of his will. Whether it is a little bit of rain or a lot of rain. Whether it is a normal day or a day of terrible calamity. All comes by the moving of his hand. History unfolds not by its own energy, but his. And when he brings these things in a special way, he makes that especially clear to us. That all along he was dwelling and he was ruling. That is why he acted by nature and not above nature. And so we must see not only that God is unlike anyone in heaven, but there is no one like him on the earth as well. Chapter 9 verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. The second thing we see in general is the way these plagues demonstrate the sovereignty of God. This is evident in what the Lord says to Pharaoh at the beginning of this new stage. Verse 15. In effect, he says, I might have destroyed you all, all at once. For if by now, he says, I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. It would have been easy for me to simply put you to death, to make you sick and cause you to die. The question is, why didn't he? Why did the Lord send nine and then ten plagues? Well, look at what he says in verse 16. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. In other words, in order to demonstrate his sovereignty. The reason he did it like this was because he was pleased to do it like this. This is something which the Apostle Paul points to in Romans chapter 9. It is interesting uh, to see that that verse, verse 16 is quoted in the great chapter on the sovereignty of God, Romans chapter 9. We, we all like to quote the, who are you all man, to question God. Uh, do you realize this quotation from Exodus precedes it directly? Let me read those verses. Romans chapter 9, verse 14, on through verse 23. And you see that the, the real point of comparison here is Pharaoh himself. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, as there may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, and here's the quotation from our text, for this reason or for this purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then 
He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer, uh, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, through willing, uh, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power know, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Think again of Pharaoh. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which were prepared uh, beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among uh, the Gentiles. I went a little bit beyond what I said I would. I said I would end at verse 23. Uh, I went through verse 24. But you see, the point in all of this is that the Lord's method with Pharaoh is a matter of his own sovereignty. It is the execution of his own will. And the thing that he is making appear to us is simply that he is sovereign and that no one can resist his will. You see, Pharaoh is a singular instance of the wrath of God. And that is just as much a matter of his sovereignty as his salvation and his mercy. To one he shows mercy, to another wrath. To one he gives over to a hard and penitent heart, to another he softens and saves. But you see, it all depends upon him, not upon man. So Paul says, who can resist his will? And who can find fault? The answer is, no one. And indeed, the more God exercises his patience with Pharaoh, striking him little by little rather than all at once, the more just his actions appear, the more difficulty we uh, find finding any fault in his actions. If Pharaoh would not repent with six blows, God would send seven or more. Yet Pharaoh still would not repent. Could God be faulted for overthrowing and damning this king? What is more, do you see how God wishes to be known? Again and again we have seen that all his actions are a demonstration of his singular power. That he alone is the Lord and there is no other. Let all the earth know this, verse 16. For this reason I allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. The Lord wishes to be known. Let the earth know this, he says. Let God's treatment of Pharaoh stand as a memorial to his power over the kings of this world. The more God suffers the evil king, the more he is glorified in his destruction. Matthew Henry. Not only that, but let the church herself draw great comfort from the same thought. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So often it was that he may know, or that you may know speaking to Pharaoh, but here he's speaking to Moses. I want you to know. I want your children to know. I want your grandchildren to know that I am the Lord. Look and behold and know that he is the Lord. You see, the same truth is capable of comforting one and frightening another. But let the church never be, never be frightened. Not by the kings of this world, nor by God himself and his sovereignty. Let her rather be comforted. 
Let her celebrate his greatness and his power. Let her know and declare that he is the Lord and that he alone is worthy to be praised. Let us tell our children and our grandchildren. Let this be the testimony not only of our generation, but of generations to come. In the third place, let us notice the many obstacles to worship. This is an interesting point to consider, but it is one that is obviously in the text as well. We have seen that God is interested in worship. That is his whole point here. Let my people go that they may serve and worship me according to my command again and again. That is his inflexible uh, demand of Pharaoh. And you notice that is what Moses also was contending for all along. He was contending for worship. Let us go, not according to your allowance or command, but according to the Lord, he says. But Pharaoh would never go along with this. After the seventh plague, he set a limitation on worship. He said, in essence, let the men go, but not the children. No, Moses says, the children too. As Matthew Henry says, Satan does all he can. Listen, parents, tell me if this is not the truth. Satan does all he can to hinder those that serve God themselves from bringing their children in to serve him. He's a sworn enemy to early piety. Following that, he says, Pharaoh, the children may go, but not the animals. Supposing the animals that stayed behind would bring them back. If only they left their animals, perhaps they would return. But Moses says, no, the animals too must go. For we must sacrifice to the Lord. And who is to say what he might require of us? In other words, O king, it is not for you to place any limits on worship. And so we must not only worship God with our families, but with all that we have. For he may require anything of us at any time, just as Moses says. It is never right to hold back or to put our hand to the plow and look back. Or set a limitation on what we might give to God. Moses here stands as the true worshiper, though a king would hinder him. He does not look for direction from the king as to how God might be worshipped. Though he was in a state of slavery, he did ask permission. But also notice, and surely this too is a most interesting point, the saints in relation to the world in their desire to worship God. We will not allow the world to hinder us. We will not allow the world to limit us, at least insofar as it is in our power. But do you notice, and I alluded to this earlier, but let me say another word about it. How willing we are in our worship of the true God to pray for rulers and those in authority. Do you see how willing Moses is in his desire to worship God to pray for the king, though the king was his enemy, to ask God for their deliverance? Not only that, but our enemies. Doesn't Jesus tell us to include those things in our prayers in Paul? What is so amazing to see here in the saintly man, Moses, is all Pharaoh had to do was ask. Moses, will you pray for me? And he prays for him. Secretly, uh, the wicked, like Pharaoh here, know that God hears our prayers. They pretend they don't know it, but deep down they do. And as I say, all they have to do is ask. And so we will pray. And how many mercies they enjoy because of it, even as they ignore our admonitions while God hears our prayers. In the fourth place, I said we would return to this thought as well, and that is the false repentance of Pharaoh. This is another uh, alarming feature of the text, one which you cannot uh, fail to miss. 
how far the repentance of man falls short of true repentance. Pharaoh here stands as an instance of the kind of worldly repentance that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We know that the worldly man knows of a form of repentance, a kind of sorrow that he might feel even for sin in the midst of punishment, but which is not uh, the godly sort. And it does not lead to life, it leads to death. Certainly that is true of Pharaoh. Already we've noticed this. How Pharaoh places limits on his repentance. This time I've sinned. Let the plague be averted and so forth. He cries out not under the pangs of conscience, but under the pangs of infirmity and calamity. His repentance, as I say, was of a worldly sort, not a godly sort. Not only that, but he even foolishly assumes that he is in a position to bargain with God the terms of his repentance. I will allow this, but not this. He seeks to bring God to his level and his terms in order to satisfy himself that he really repented. Of course, this is also what the Pharisees did Uh, in the preaching of Jesus. You notice he exposes uh, really the heart and the essence of Pharisaism, and that is uh, that they brought the law down to their level. They made it easy to keep. And Jesus exposes that very easily by saying the law goes much further and runs much deeper than you ever imagined. What we need to realize is that Pharaoh and the Pharisees stand with all the wicked. This is what all men do. They content themselves with a kind of partial obedience and repentance, thinking they have satisfied the demands of God and their own conscience by bringing them to their level. But Jesus corrected this once and for all when he said you have to be perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. The law is never relaxed because imposed on sinful men. Or worse, because man is not inclined to keep it or doesn't want to keep it. No, man is called to attain nothing less than God's own perfection. Otherwise, he is lost. And we see how lost Pharaoh becomes when God rejects his repentance. He is enraged by Moses' repeated refusal. And in his eventual desire to kill Moses, he is expressing his own hatred for God himself, since Moses was as God to him. In truth, the sinner would kill God if he could. And the greatest folly of the sinner is sometimes he thinks that he has, either in the crucifixion of our Lord at Calvary, or perhaps in their indirect attacks uh, on God which fall on the people of God. If only I can get rid of Moses, Pharaoh thinks, then I will be rid of God. And we will soon discover how foolish that was. Or at least in so hardening their hearts that they imagine his silence equals his non-existence, which is equally foolish. In all of this, the sinner's hatred of God is so great that it knows no bounds. And we need not wonder why hell is his just and eventual destination. But also we see once more. How ready he is in his failed and false repentance to impute the worst motives on the best things. So warped is his mind ensnared in sin. The saints here only wish to worship God. And the sinner says, as Pharaoh here, take heed for evil is in your mind. The best things he hates, the worst things he loves. But again, do you see, sad to think. All of this emerges from his heart in his attempt at repentance, his sad and his failed attempt at repentance. In this, it becomes clear what was really in his heart, not a hatred for sin, but a hatred for God and a hatred for God's people. 
like Cain before him, when God rejects his offering, what is truly in his heart emerges, namely hatred and murder. And that's why the whole uh, the whole incident ends with his uh, declaration that if Moses ever comes to him again, he will kill him. The final point is this. It is what we've seen all along throughout the Exodus, Exodus, that there are two kingdoms engaged in total conflict. And there was one sermon I devoted almost entirely to that thought. Theologians call this the antithesis. Total, irreconcilable war between the kingdom of God or the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. All the world forces of evil here are focused in this one person, Pharaoh. He personifies all that opposes God in this world and even hell itself. But on the other side, there is a kingdom far more powerful, though it often does not appear so. And Moses personifies the power of this kingdom, which is the power of God Almighty. And the question which we again are forced to consider is very simply, who will win? We are aware of the conflict. We are, let us be honest, often badly discouraged by it because we, like Moses and the Israelites, are engaged in the same exact battle. And because it so often seems the other side is winning, does it not? But here's the truth we all need to hear. God is never the loser. Never. Whatever battles he engages in, he will surely win. But the question we sometimes ask knowing this is why does it so often seem untrue? Why does it take God so long? I was just having this conversation with my daughter in the car. Why did God wait 400 years? Sometimes God waits an awfully long time. Why does he bring the church through these periods of, uh, of waiting? Why does he make it seem that the other side is winning? Bringing us through a period of frustration and even apparent defeat. Well, look at Israel here. Do you think at this moment she felt victorious? God was preparing her for victory, but did she yet enjoy it? Well, she enjoyed the distinction between herself and Egypt, and God was surely showing his favor by not making the same plagues fall on Israel and Goshen. But let us be honest in saying they were still slaves in Egypt. They still awaited their final deliverance. Her victory was not yet apparent, though it was certain. God sent tokens of encouragement, more than enough to give Israel true faith. But her true deliverance lay still in the future. So Israel here was called, like us, to walk by faith in the meantime, and with patience to eagerly wait for it, to use the language of Romans chapter 8. My point is, we are amazed in history to read of some of the Lord's most amazing acts of deliverance, uh, works of salvation, which we are told, as here, to celebrate And to tell our children and our grandchildren. And to let that stuff become the stuff of faith. But we sometimes forget that they happened, uh, that before they happened, there was a period of testing. Where the faith and the nerves of God's people were being exercised. And we can imagine they must have asked, as we, when will our deliverance come? Even up to the very point of her deliverance. Think here, for instance, of the disciples when their Lord was crucified. How sad things seemed then. How afraid they were uh, as they were found hiding in a home for fear of the Jews. How far off their victory seemed. 
when the hour and the power of darkness, it seemed, was prevailing. There was an apparent victory, which discouraged these downcast disciples. But in reality, the darkest hour brought, as we know, the brightest deliverance of all in the resurrection. And so I'm just saying that God loves to do this sort of thing. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's one of the most amazing things we discover from the book of Exodus, and in reality, uh, the whole of the Bible, that God enjoys the fight. He relishes it. He enjoys a good battle. He is even prepared in the battle to appear to be defeated. I confess I sometimes wish God would just make things easier, and I know you feel the same. But that isn't what God does. Remember, he is sovereign here. And history is the unfolding of his will. And everything that happens in history is meant to make us see this. He makes things hard. I go further. He makes them seem impossible. And only then does he act and appear as the church's deliverer and Israel's redeemer. And so my message to you is what God said to Moses at the beginning of chapter 10. Tell the people not to be afraid. Let them know and see that I am the Lord. Look upon all my victories and see that when the Lord enters the battle, battle, victory will soon appear in glorious fashion. And so long as we must wait, we have more than enough evidence of his goodness to exercise faith and patience, eagerly looking for what he will do, even if kings should threaten to kill us. Amen. And let us stand in response to God's word by singing together hymn number 32. Oh, uh-huh.
now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.